Welcome, everyone, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Consider this your invitation to join Kyle and Chris on a journey through our minds. Where we explore the questions that have fascinated us for as long as we can remember. Could anarchy actually work? Does God exist? And just how did the cosmos get here anyway? Let me be the Virgil to your Dante, the Sacagawea to your Lewis and Clark. Let's take the guided tour through the dark chambers of our unconscious, seeking answers to the most important and unsettled questions of our shared existence. Ready or not, here we go. Here we go. Welcome back, one and all, to the Two Tongues Podcast. Solo episode coming at you today for a little bit of opinion scholarship. We're getting back into opinion scholarship this week with the Rig Veda. So, as a reminder, recently we got we got into Zoroastrianism and the holy book of that faith, that very ancient faith. And I mentioned at the time that the Avesta is, along with Hinduism from India two religious traditions that are actually very closely related and also very ancient. So Hinduism is, if you remember, the oldest continuously practiced religion on earth. It dates back many thousands of years, predating Judeo-Christianity by a mile. And Zoroastrianism shares, in fact, like a language relationship with Sanskrit, with the ancient Sanskrit that the, uh, the Rig Veda and these early Hindu scriptures were written in. The Avestan language is what we were talking about with, the, uh, you know, with Zoroastrianism, Sanskrit with the Rig Veda and Hinduism. Um, and as you guys know, my interests when it comes to religion really centers around the creation stories. It centers around how they understand God and how and what kind of model, how they formulate that and the relationship between how they see God and how they see the creation of God themselves and the material cosmos. Because I think that tells us really everything we need to know about a people, about a culture. It tells us everything we need, we need to know about human psychology. And it comes in all kinds of different flavors. So... Because this whole Zoroastrian creation story is fresh on the mind, we just did it uh, last week, I believe it was, I want to get into the complement to this ancient Indo-European tradition that we see in Zoroastrianism. And we saw last week how how deeply those stories impacted Judeo-Christianity, how you can see echoes of them in all of these Indo-European groups. The ancient Greeks are no exception. And today we're going to see... We're going to see what the ancient Hindus had to say on the matter. And I call this episode the embryo that is everything, which I think is fucking cool. But it's also a quote from the Rig Veda trying to describe God. What is God? The embryo that is everything. Man, that's, that's, that's a model to consider. Now, I'm going to be reading you a translation by Wendy Doniger, who was a, uh, a professor of... Um, Sanskrit and and, uh, and and ancient ancient Near Eastern culture from the uh, University of Chicago. The copy I'm reading is from the 80s, the early 80s. Um, there are lots of translations you can look at, but this is one of those Penguin Classic versions, and they're like designed to be, 
you know, easier to, to read and to understand. You're basically uh, allowing Wendy to do all of the um, all of the hard work for us. But you know what? So be it. That's easier for me. Now, before I dig into this uh, and start reading you the actual scriptures, which which are hymns, by the way. The Rig Veda is a series of hymns and prayers. If you remember, we, we talked about the Soma prayers uh, in an earlier episode. What we're going to do here is focus on a couple of these stories that have to do with the creation of the cosmos. Now, you might remember when we did the Zoroastrian episode where I talked about the story of the creation of human beings and how there's uh, two of them in the Bible. There's the story of um, Adam and Eve being made from the dust of the ground, and there's the story of uh, Eve being made from Adam's rib. So you have these two separate stories. Like that, in the Rig Veda, we have multiple stories about how the cosmos came into being. And they're related in interesting ways, um, but they're not identical. And it's important to understand that these ancient religious people, these ancient philosophers, were trying to wrestle with the, an idea that is beyond comprehension, they're trying to wrestle with the idea of what was here before being in order to bring it into existence. That's God. That's the embryo that is everything. And there's themes that are going to run through this that are going to ring, ring true to you, that are going to sound familiar to you. Sacrifice is, what is a big one. Uh, but before I get in, I want to make a distinction because in these polytheistic religions of the ancient world, many of them, most of them, um, worship multiple gods. And not all of them had an idea of a high god or a monotheistic god. And so it's, it's difficult to understand the difference when they're talking about the gods versus God. And there's a hymn in the Rig Veda that says, I'm just going to take a tiny piece of it, but I think it speaks to this and it's worth noting before we jump in. This is hymn 2.30 of the Rig Veda, and it's a hymn to all the gods. And there's a piece in this hymn. Uh, this is basically a prayer that's said out loud. Um, and it goes like this. You gods who belong to all men. So I'm just taking a tiny piece. I want you to hear that. You gods who belong to all men. And I want to give you a contrast to this. It's interesting to imagine that the gods belong to men. Because we, we think about the gods as transcendent, as you know, incorporeal, as existing somehow above and outside of the natural world and able to influence the world and, and to influence us. So if anybody belongs to anybody, it would be man to God. At least that's how it, that's how it seems rational to me. And maybe this is a bias. I mean, if you guys remember, um, Jesus loves me. Right? This is a Sunday school song that we learn as Christians. And one of the pieces of the song lyrics are, little ones to him belong. Right, We belong to God. We are the creation of, of God. Right, no, See, in, in, in the Rig Veda, it says, you gods who belong to all men. So they have this inverted. It's not that we belong to the gods, but that the gods belong to us. And I think that distinction is going to help us today when we're, when we're trying to understand the creation. Because it's not the gods that are involved in creation. It's God. 
See, there's something different. Now, the gods belong to men, but God is different. The gods and men belong to God with a capital G. That's more like the monotheistic idea that we're familiar with from Judeo-Christianity. So we're going to be looking at God with a capital G and how in the Rig Veda they try to make sense of it. So that brings me to hymn 10.129. I'm going to absolutely butcher the uh, Sanskrit uh, language. Uh, I mean, I have absolutely no doubt about it. But for authenticity's sake, I'm going to try. So you can laugh all you want. This hymn is called Nasadiya. And that's just a creation hymn. Nasadia. And I'm going to give you an annotated version of all of these. I'm not going to read everything word for word. I want to hit on the high points. So here we go. There was neither non existence nor existence, neither the realm of space nor the sky. What stirred? Where? There was neither death nor immortality, no distinguishing of night nor of day. That one breathed, windless, by its own impulse. There was nothing beyond. Darkness was hidden by darkness. Desire came upon that one in the beginning. That was the first seed of mind. There was impulse beneath. There was giving forth above. The gods came afterwards with the creation of this universe. Whence this creation has arisen, perhaps it formed itself, or perhaps it did not. The one who looks down on it in the highest heaven, only he knows, or perhaps he does not. All right, so there you have it. There's there's the first hymn, creation hymn we're going to talk about. I don't know what you think. I don't know where your mind goes here. It sounds very different from... From the biblical story, in the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. It sounds, it reminds me a lot more of um, something like a, like from Taoism, especially in the beginning. There was neither non-existence nor existence. What does that mean? Right? It's either one or the other, isn't it? There's either existence or there's non-existence. No, see, in the beginning, there was neither. See, existence and non-existence are something like opposites. And that didn't exist. There was no opposition. And we get hints of this because it says in many places, that one breathed windless by its own impulse. Desire came upon that one. So you keep seeing this idea of oneness that's being brought up. right? There is no opposition if there's only one. And this is the idea. There was neither non-existence or existence because there was only one there is no opposition there. It's not yet possible. And everything else kind of flows from here. There was neither the realm of space nor the sky. And there's these questions that get asked here, and I think it's really important that, that you see it because you don't see it anywhere else as far as I'm concerned. Where in the Bible are you asked questions by the Scripture and asked to contemplate what stirred where? So the hymn is asking you, If there was at some point nothing, and then reality came into being, what was there when there was nothing there? What stirred? Where? There is no place for it to be. 
There is no being to stir. So what? What is that? And it's a very philosophical like imperative to contemplate on that. And it's paradoxical, and that's important. I've said many times that paradox plays a huge role in, in mystical experience and in psychedelic mystical experience. The unification of opposites, the, the image of the Ouroboros like we talk about over and over again when we talk about Jordan Peterson and when we talk about these creation stories. When he says there is neither death nor immortality, again, you can see these are opposites and opposition didn't yet exist. No distinguishing of night and day for the same reason. And I want to point out that what this really means is that these concepts haven't yet been separated from one another. So death and immortality haven't yet been separated. Night and day haven't yet been separated. So there's a wholeness. There's this one unifying wholeness that we're supposed to be imagining that was there in the beginning. And then the hymn starts to talk about what that is. That one breathed windless by its own impulse. So, you know, there, there is not a being to breathe, and so it's windless. You know, it's not breath like you and I would consider it. It's some, maybe something more like spirit, and the word breath and spirit, as we've talked about, are, are closely related in lots of ancient languages for, for you know, the same reason, because breath and, and life are connected to one another. But by its own impulse, it breathed. It's like it, it became by its own impulse. And the scripture tells us there was nothing beyond. So there's nothing else. There's nothing, there's nothing else, nothing beyond. It's only this one thing. And then poetically it tells us darkness was hidden by darkness. Something unknowable. And then it says desire came upon that one in the beginning, which was the first seed of mind. So whatever this thing is that isn't a being... That's this, this mystical union, this oneness. It has desire. And it says, there was impulse beneath. There was giving forth above. So I want you to understand, God has a desire. It doesn't say what that desire is, but God has a desire. So the impulse is the desire. So all, all this mystical oneness, all this primordial God needs is to have a desire and then it immediately makes that thing manifest. It makes its desire, makes itself manifest, right? All it needs is to have the desire. And what it's desired, it exists. It wills it immediately into existence. And that's what this means. There was impulse beneath. There was giving forth above. So God has the desire for what? For being, for creation, for self-experience, I would argue. And as soon as it has that impulse, boom, you have existence. And then it says the gods came afterwards with the creation. So again, this is the difference between God with a capital G and the gods, which are seen as psychological forces, they're seen as natural forces, they're seen as transcendent things beyond human power and human knowledge, but they're not the ultimate thing. And then, it, and then it leaves us with this paradox, this beautiful paradox, where it says, Whence has the creation arisen? Perhaps it formed itself, or perhaps it did not. 
the one who looks down on it in the highest heaven, only he knows. Or perhaps he does not. So they even leave this, this idea of it being unknowable even to God with a capital G. And I think that's important. Because the one is prior to knowledge. It can't know anything. And the reason is that knowledge requires otherness. It requires separation. Like I, I, If I am all that exists, I can know nothing. Because there's nothing to know. I'm the only thing that exists. There needs to be something other, something that's an object of my knowledge. And this is why even God with a capital G doesn't know because not it because it it's prior to knowledge. And you see how philosophical this is. And I want to connect this idea of this hymn being some sort of a exercise in meditation or an exercise in contemplation. Your mind has got to get involved and it has to participate because it asks you what stirred where. Right? You have to think about that. And allow your mind to, to pose what, what might it be that was there before there was anything there? And what could, it, what could that mean? And that brings us to another hymn about the creation. It's short and sweet, uh, but I like it. It's, it's hymn 10.121. It's called The Unknown God, The Golden Embryo. So why the unknown God? For all the reasons I just said. Because it's prior to knowledge. That's why it's the unknown God. What is the golden embryo? Well, we're about to find out. It goes like this. In the beginning, the golden embryo arose. Once he was born, he was the one Lord of creation. He held in place the earth and the sky. He who gives life, whose command all the gods obey. His shadow is immortality and death. When the high waters came, pregnant with the embryo that is everything, he arose from that as the one life's breath of the gods. He who in his greatness looked over the waters, which were pregnant with doxa, bringing forth the sacrifice, he who was the one god, among all the gods. And that's it. So I'm going to give you some explanation. I know you probably don't know what doxa means, and I didn't either when I first read this, so let me, let me just elucidate this for you. When it, when it says, in the beginning, the golden embryo arose. So you have to imagine, what is the golden embryo? What could that possibly mean? So we know what an embryo is. It's an egg. So it's something like a cosmic egg. And why is it gold? What's all the symbolism and imagery that goes with gold? You know, it's perfect. It can't be corrupted. It doesn't rust. It doesn't fade. It, it shines like the sun. It's perfect. You know, it's the highest of all metals, right? So you have this idea of this perfect egg, this cosmic egg. It was there in the beginning. And then when it was born, it was the one Lord of creation. So you have this, this mystical unity. The oneness is still, still there and it's still important. And what it does is it holds the earth and the sky in place. And so you see this idea of the oneness being separated. The earth and the sky get pushed apart from one another. And we saw that before in Zoroastrianism, if you remember. The earth and the sky get split apart. Now, in Zoroastrianism, it was seen as 
uh, Ahura Mazda, kind of a god of good, and Ariman, the god of evil. So good and evil get separated apart. And in the middle, in the space between them, that is the place where the earth can exist. That's the realm of being. And it doesn't exist until the, until the unity is separated. Good and evil are separated. And that's what we see here. The earth and the sky are separated. And then it says, He who gives life, whose command all the gods obey. Right. So this is another way of separating God with a capital G from all of the gods that Hinduism poses or any polytheistic religion poses as transpersonal, psychological, or natural forces. His shadow is immortality and death. So you see the, the opposites there again. Then he says, When the high waters came, pregnant with the embryo that is everything, he arose from that as one life's breath of the gods. Now, one life's breath means something like that which is life in all of us is one thing. So life is something like one thing. And so you have this mystical unity there. And the breath of the gods, like that which is life, even for the gods, that's the same thing that's life in general, life for me and you. Life for God with a capital G. If there's a distinction between God with a capital G and what we call life, that's not clear. But there's something else interesting here. Uh, apart from this phrase, the embryo that is everything, which I love, it's like when this cosmic egg, egg hatches or what is within it, is the potential for everything that will ever be. And that's how I understand God. I understand God to be potentiality, that from which anything can be or can become. But when it begins, it says, when the high waters came, pregnant with the embryo that is everything. What are these waters? What are high waters? So if we go back to like the biblical account as, as an example, they talk about this cosmology which is separating the waters above from the waters below. The waters below are the seas and the oceans, let's say. The waters above are like the, the expanse of space, the cosmos. So when the high waters came, right, this is like when space emerged. Um, but it's also important to understand that from a psychological perspective, water are seen to be a symbol of the unconscious, and I think there's a parallel meaning here. You know, the unconscious and the expanse of space are something quite like one another. They're both, they're both infinite. They're both the foundation for other things. In the case of unconsciousness, it's the foundation for consciousness. In the case of space, it's the foundation for the stars and the black holes and the planets and all that sort of thing. So the high waters are something like the unconscious, and it's pregnant with the embryo that is everything. That, that's something like consciousness, you could say. And then a little bit later on, there's something, a parallel that I want to bring to your attention where he says, he who is his greatness, excuse me, he who in his greatness, looked over the waters, which were pregnant with doxa. Now doxa is this cr creative principle, but it's, it's also specifically the masculine creative principle because there's a feminine and a masculine. And remember, there's always a pair of opposites here. Doxa is one part of this. And it's identified with a god who we're going to see in a minute called Prajapati, and also the seed, the seed of things. 
So when he says, he who in his greatness looked over the waters, I can't help but, but be reminded of Genesis and the creation story when it says, the Spirit of God was on the surface of the deep. Because again, you see the same idea. You see the waters. You see, he who in his greatness was there looking over the waters. This is the Spirit of God on the surface of the deep. I think that's a very interesting parallel. And then it ends by saying, he who was the one God among all the gods. This is very important because in Hinduism, especially in the later forms that you see in the Upanishads, God, all of these multitude of gods, and there are thousands or millions, let's say, they're all considered to sort of roll up into one another. And, you're, and you'll often hear different names of gods that are, that are used, and they just mean the same God. And it's hard for me to understand why. It's like in different contexts, in different places in India, you know, the, the, uh, the God might be called um, various, various things. And again, in the Upanishads, Brahma, the great God, who's also associated with Prajapati, who we're going to talk about in a minute, um, he's basically the God to which all of the other gods roll up to, meaning that every god is sort of an emanation of Brahma. And there are three there are three sort of important, you know, key gods, Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva, but all of the gods that exist are emanations of that trinity, Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva. Now Brahma, Vishnu, Shiva are also emanations of the one god. They roll up to Brahma. So ultimately what you have is one god. And I would argue that this is a form of monotheism. And you can scoff at that all you want as a Jew or as a Christian or as a Muslim. You can scoff at that all you want. Because because it's hard to deny that even we, in our monotheism, acknowledge angels and demons of all sorts, powers and principalities, cherubims and seraphims, and all of that, right? We can allow for all of that and still pretend that God is one. And Christians get even more bold. We start talking about Father, Son, and Holy Ghost and still claiming that God is one. And this, I think, is a parallel worth bringing to this idea of the one God among all the gods. That brings me to the next hymn we're going to talk about. Hymn 10.90. It's called Purusa Sukta, or the hymn of man. Now, man is misleading here. We're not going to be hearing about the creation of man. But the word the man is going to be used. And it's it's used to denote something that in the scriptures are called Purusa and Prajapati and Brahma. All of these words are have been used to describe what I'm getting ready to tell you. The man in the hymns that we're going to talk about isn't a man like you or I. It's, it's God with a capital G in a very particular understanding. So the story we're going to read is one where the God... That the gods create the world by dismembering the cosmic giant. And this is God with a capital G, Purusa. He's the primeval male who is the victim in a Vedic sacrifice. So a sacrificial act. The man in the hymn refers to Purusa, which means spirit, or Prajapati, which means lord of creation. And later, Prajapati becomes associated with Brahma, who is the one. So you can think of Purusa spirit, Prajapati, the Lord of creation, and Brahma. You can think of them all as essentially the same thing. And in the hymn, 
we're going to be using the man to mean that. So here we go. The man has a thousand heads, a thousand eyes, a thousand feet. It is the man who is all this, whatever has been and whatever is to be. And the man is yet more than this. All creatures are a quarter of him. Three quarters are what is immortal in heaven. The gods spread the sacrifice with the man as the offering. They anointed the man, the sacrifice born at the beginning. From that sacrifice in which everything was offered, the melted fat was collected, and he made it into those beasts who live in the air, in the forest, and in villages. The moon was born from his mind, from his eye the sun. Indra and Agni come from his mouth, and from his vital breath the wind was born. From his navel the middle realm of space arose, from his head the sky. From his two feet came the earth and the quarters of the sky from his ear. Thus they set the worlds in order. And that's it. So what does that remind you of? There's all kinds of interesting stuff here. Firstly, let me bring to your attention, the God is being sacrificed, and from his, from his being, the cosmos is being created. And that reminds me of a little book we read together on the, on the podcast uh, in, the, in season one called God's Debris by the, by the infamous Scott Adams of Dilbert fame. He wrote this great little book called God's Debris where, uh, where this, this sage, this very mysterious character is, is telling this, this, this younger fella um, all of these mysteries of, of, of the universe and basically tells him that, that God is the thing that destroyed itself in order to become the cosmos, so that it can know itself, so that it can experience itself. And so God sacrifices himself to himself. And this is exactly what we see in this myth. And the scripture says, that sacrifice in which everything was offered, the sacrifice born at the beginning, the very first thing that ever was, or the thing that always was, from that sacrifice in which everything was offered. Now, I think there's a parallel here when we say the sacrifice in which everything was offered, because what does he mean by everything here? He means God, the thing from which everything comes. You know, everything rolled up in a nutshell, that's God. That's the thing being sacrificed. And I can't help but think that that reminds me of the, of the Jesus story. God in the flesh sacrificing itself to itself, to humanity, to the cosmos that it created. And it, and it talks about how, you know, just like they would make a, uh, an animal sacrifice, right, in these ancient times, the fat is collected, right? And this is exactly what follows in the story. The fat was collected from the God being sacrificed and made into the beasts who live in the air, in the forest, and in villages, Right? That's, that's animals and birds and man. And the moon is born from his mind, from his eye, the sun. The god Indra and Agni come from his mouth. The, his vital breath becomes the wind. His navel becomes the middle realm of space, his head, the sky, his feet, the earth. So his, his being is broken up and, cr- and, and created into material reality, including the creatures that live in it, like you and I.
It's a great story, you know, and not just because I can connect it to God's debris, which I loved, but because this story in particular, this Indo-European, this very ancient Indo-European story, we see lots of other places. So you, I, want, I want to read for you really quickly a couple of similar stories. Remember, we're talking about India, ancient India right now. What I'm going to do is give you a story. It's from the Prose Edda. If you don't know what that what that is, it was a, it was written down um, really much later than I mean the story is much more ancient. It was written down by a gentleman named Snorri Sturluson, and it is the it is the Norse creation story. So now we're going way up to Scandinavia, and I want to read this to you and tell me tell me what stands out. Again, this is an annotated version, but it goes like this. In the beginning was yawning gap. Okay, so yawning gap is like the abyss. You can imagine coming up to the edge of something and you look down and you can't see the end of it. It's just the yawning gap, right? It's the abyss. Same thing we hear about in the Bible, right? The, the deep and the abyss are there in the beginning. So in the beginning was yawning gap. It became filled with heaviness and masses of ice. When the breath of heat met the frost so that it melted and dripped, life was quickened by the power of that which sent the heat and became a man's form. And that man is named Ymir. And thence are come the races of the frost giants. The sons slew Ymir the giant. Lo, where he fell, there gushed forth so much blood that with it they drowned all the race of the frost giants, save that one, whom the giants called Berglamir, escaped. He went upon his ship and his wife with him, and they were safe. They took Ymir and bore him into the middle of the yawning gap and made of him the earth. Of his blood, the sea, and the waters, the land was made of his flesh and the crags of his bones. Gravel and stones they fashioned from his teeth. They took his skull also and made of it heaven and set it up over the earth with four corners. For their citadel they raised up the brows of Ymir the giant and called that place Midgard. They took also his brain and cast it in the air and made from it clouds. <sighs> Buddy. So there's a bunch going on here, but you see, obviously, the, same, the story ends in exactly the same way. This, this primordial creature, Ymir, is killed. His body is then used to create the cosmos and all of the realms that exist in being. Same exact story from thousands of miles away and thousands of years apart. There, there's, no, there's no certainty of any connection between these two stories apart from the fact that the, that the folks that wrote the Rig Veda were Indo-European people who came from this, the Russian steppe, the same people that migrated into Scandinavia and became the Vikings, the same people who went to Ireland and became the Celts, the same people that went to Iran and became the Persians. That's why this story is, is the same. And I'll give you a piece of evidence for this. You might have noticed that when Ymir is killed, that his blood just like we saw in the Indian story, becomes a flood, becomes the oceans. But what else happens? What else happens? 
One giant is saved from the flood. Burglamir, who escapes on a ship with his wife. Sound a bit like Noah to you? Sound a bit like Utnatiptian from the, from, the, from the Mesopotamian story? Noah, Burglamir, saved by the, by the flood that destroyed all of the life on earth. With just him and his wife in a boat. Yeah, pretty interesting, right? How about this? There's this piece in the middle where it says, They took Ymir and bore him into the middle of the yawning gap and made of him the earth. Does that sound familiar to you? Remember when, last week when we did the Zoroastrian story, when the spirit of good, Ahura Mazda, and the spirit of evil, Ariman, are separated. The space in between them becomes the place where the earth exists. Listen to this. Into the middle of the yawning gap they bore him and made of him the earth. You can see that there. But I'm not done. Let me give you one more. Let me take it a step further, and I'm gonna. this is going to be a little bit of a curveball, at least I hope it is. Why don't we take a little tiptoe over to China for a second? China? Or there Indo-Europeans there? Nope. But we're going to tell you a story that's going to sound an awful lot like this. Now, there's many creation stories in ancient China. Lots of tribes, lots of people, lots of time. You know, it's a very old civilization. But one of these creation stories, which was adopted by the Taoists, um, from what I could tell, the story dates to maybe as, 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 as far back as 1000 BC, maybe even further back. But they know of this story from the Zhao dynasty. And it's the story of a god called Pangu. And here's an interesting fact. Pangu is depicted as a hairy giant with horns on his head. If you wonder why I point that out, it's because Ymir, who we saw in the Scandinavian story, is a frost giant. Right? He is a giant. Pangu is a giant. The Chinese story goes like this. In the beginning, there was nothing. The universe was in a formless, primordial state. It coalesced into a cosmic egg for 18,000 years. Within it, the perfectly opposed principles of yin and yang become balanced, and Pangu emerged from the egg. Pangu began, began creating the world. He separated yin from yang, creating the earth and the sky. To keep them separated, Pangu stood between them and pushed up the sky. After 18,000 years had elapsed, Pangu died. His breath became the wind, mist, and clouds. His voice thunder. His left eye, the sun. His right eye, the moon. His head, the mountains. His blood, rivers. His muscles, fertile land. His facial hair, the stars, and Milky Way. His fur, bushes, and forests. His bones, valuable minerals. His marrow, precious jewels, his sweat, rain, and the fleas on his fur became animals. All right. You can obviously see the parallels to whether we're talking about the Hindu story of Prajapati, whether we're talking about Ymir or Pangu from China, you see this primordial god being a self-sacrificial being. He dies in order to become the cosmos. Now, there's a couple things that are worth mentioning here. 
we have this idea of a cosmic egg in the Chinese story, exactly like we saw in the Hindu story. And within that egg, we have perfectly balanced principles. We have opposites, yin and yang. Right? That is the Ouroboros. That is opposites in union, exactly as we see in all of these stories. And Pangu emerges from that egg, creates the world. He does the exact same thing we see in all of these other stories. He separates this mystical oneness. He separates that thing into two, into opposites. He creates yin and yang. And when he does, that, that separates the earth from the heavens, the earth from the sky. Exactly as we saw in the Hindu story. Exactly as we see in the imagery from Zoroastrianism, where, where evil and good are separated from one another. In the last line of this hymn, which I know we've a long way from where we started, but the last line of this hymn says, With the sacrifice, the gods sacrificed to the sacrifice. I love that. I love that. It's paradoxical, but it shows you this idea of of sacrificing self to self. And that's philosophically and, and conceptually very important to understanding what God is, what God means. With the sacrifice, the gods sacrificed to the sacrifice. And then it says, these were the first ritual laws. What does that mean? It means that at the primordial God sacrificing himself to become being, to become the material cosmos and life on earth, you and I and all things for all time. That that is a embodiment and an illustration of a fundamental law. Something like the Ten Commandments are in the Bible. What is that? Something like sacrifice is the primordial moral obligation. And we are to repeat that sacrificial act. We are to be a, a fractal mirror of God. We are to do as God did in the beginning, to sacrifice ourselves to ourselves. What does that mean? Anybody with children knows what that means. You, you empty yourself into your children. You, you, you live and die for them. You live for them and not for yourself. That is self-sacrificial. I can't remember the name of that church, but there's a church in Spain that sometimes Jordan Peterson will bring up. They've been building it for, I don't know, hundreds of years. And all of these craftsmen and, and workers uh, died. The architect, of course, died. And they're continuing to build it. And the people who started it will never see the end of it, you know? But they're still working towards it. Why? That's a sacrifice of oneself to who? To future generations. To oneself. Because what is the difference between you and I? What is the difference between me and some future person? This is key. Sacrifice. That's the first ritual law. That brings me to the next hymn. Hymn 10.81 and 2. It's interesting. It's called... Here we go again. It's called Visvakarman. Visvakarman, which means the All-Maker. Now, I want to I point out that while we're talking about Indo-European people, and we talked about the Scandinavians earlier, the Scandinavians have a god that's not unlike Brahma, not unlike Zeus to the Greeks. The god is called Odin, or Woden if you're, if you're Germanic. And Odin was called the All-Father. Right now, this hymn is called the All Maker. And I wonder if there's a connection here 
if the Indo-European link between the Scandinavians and the ancient Hindus is the reason why we see God called something much like All-Father. I'll leave that up to you, but here we go. With eyes on all sides and mouths on all sides, with arms on all sides and feet on all sides, the one God created the sky and the earth. Ask yourself in your own hearts, what base did he stand on when he set up the worlds? The all-maker, Lord of sacred speech. The all-maker is the one who forms, who sets in order, and who is the highest image. Our Father who created and set in order and knows all forms, all worlds, who all alone gave names to the gods. He is the one to whom all creatures come to ask questions. That which is beyond the sky and beyond this earth, beyond the gods. What was that first embryo that the waters received? On the navel of the unborn was set the one on whom all creatures rest. You cannot find him who created these creatures. Another has come between you. And that's it. So there's a lot to talk about here too, but some of the th themes are, are, are very similar. We see the image of the embryo. We hear God being called the one. So we have this mystic unity again reinforced in this story. We also have questions being asked, and I have, to, I have to point out how interesting that is, that a scripture will ask questions, because I'm so used to authority coming from God, right? The Bible is not to be questioned if you're a Christian. The Bible is the word of God, and so it's authoritative. It's the end of the story, because that's what the good book said, goddammit, something like that. But in these, in these Hindu scriptures, you have questions, Right? From whence it asked earlier. Now it says, ask yourself, what base did he stand on when he set up the worlds? And so you're, you're put into this contemplative state of mind where you're trying to imagine what, what was there before anything existed and how God could, on what, on what platform is he standing, right? When he creates time and space, when he creates the earth, right? If we all stand on the earth, if the earth doesn't exist, what is God standing on, right? So you're asking, you're, you're asking yourself these paradoxical questions, and it's the scripture itself that's asking you those questions, that's asking you to think about it. And so you participate in this prayer by thinking. It's a unique thing. It's not something you can be helped with. It's not something a priest can do for you. You have to do it yourself. And I think that's... Very interesting and very important and maybe missing in lots of other religious traditions. What about this part where he says, the all-maker is the lord of sacred speech? So I can't help but think about this Christian idea of the logos. Right? The logos is, is said to be that which God is. It's associated with speech. That's why it's called the word. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was God, and the Word was with God. So here you have a, um, something tying together this All-Maker, the Lord of sacred speech, to God, the Logos. And he says, it's the one who forms, who sets in order, who is the highest image. And we have that same language in Christianity, right? In Judaism, we're made in the image of God. And form and order, these are things that are tied, also associated with the Logos. 
And for more Christian imagery, if it sounds familiar to you, our Father who created and set in order, right? Our Father who art in heaven. We see that, that idea of a shared origin, of a shared Father, the All-Maker, the All-Father. He who gave names to all the gods, and I can't help but think about Adam in the garden naming the animals. It's like participating in creation. And it says he's the one whom all other creatures come to ask questions. He, he's the only all-knowing entity. If, if I can even use the word entity. That which is beyond the sky and beyond the earth and beyond the gods. Right? So here's another difference, another distinction, understanding the gods versus God with a capital G. That thing is beyond the gods. Then they ask the question again. Another question, what was that first embryo that the waters received? This last bit is interesting, and I love it, actually. It's very poetic as well. On the navel of the unborn was set the one on whom all creatures rest. So the foundation of all existing things, the one. It says you cannot find him. Another has come between you. So you seek for God in creation. You seek for God in people and in, the, and in the cosmos and in the stars. And you can't find him because something has come between you. Now, I looked at the commentary on this and it says that ignorance has come between them. And there's something like this in the Bible, right, where, where Adam and Eve uh, eat the uh, fruit of the tree of knowledge and they're, and they're kicked out of the garden, and now they have this distance between them and God. They used to walk with God. They used to be in God's presence, and now they're separated from God. And so there's some idea like that, like, like ignorance or sin or something comes between you. But I think differently. I think you might say that the veil of perception comes between us, or what Bernardo Castrop calls the dissociative boundary. So I think that God, understood as the one, uh, is really the deepest truth about God, the one. And, and like I mentioned before, if I am the only thing that exists, then I can know nothing. The knowledge is not possible. Experience is not possible because there isn't anything else. There's nothing to know about. There's nothing to experience. And so what God does, as we see in these stories of sacrifice, of God sacrificing itself, is that God sacrifices its unity, its oneness, to become opposition, to become op to become other. And we can see that otherness as the material cosmos. So God becomes many so that it can know itself, so that it can experience itself. And we look around and we exist within a world that is God. And every creature we we interact with and speak with and, and eat, you know, that's God. And we have nothing, all of our experience is nothing but an experience of God. Everything is self-experience. I think that's the truth here. And what's come between you and God is this dissociative boundary, this veil of perception, whatever it is that keeps you from seeing the truth, that we are all one. And that, that's what lifts in mystical experience, when you have that one with the universe feeling. That veil lifts, and you see that truth or glimpses of that truth. That brings me to the last story we're going to talk about, which is the shortest. Hymn 10.72 of the Rig Veda. 
It's called Aditi and the Birth of the Gods. So you'll remember earlier I talked about doxa. And I said that's like the masculine uh, uh, creative principle. It would be the, um, I, don't, I don't know which one is masculine, yin or yang, but one of them is. So that's the parallel. Aditi is the feminine version. So the, uh, the opposite of the yin, to the, the yin to the yang or the male to the female. And so that's what, what we're going to talk about here, Aditi. And it goes like this. In the first age of the gods, existence was born from non-existence. After this, the quarters of the sky were born from her who crouched with legs spread. All right, so let me stop there for a second. Who is she who crouches with legs spread? Well, the image here is of a woman giving birth. And so there's this very ancient idea of this primordial creative goddess, the thing that we call chaos in the ancient Greek stories, um, but it's also, it's also indicative of this Ouroboros, this union of opposites. It's like the cosmic egg. So you can imagine the woman with crouched legs is the cosmic egg, and she's giving birth to the pangu. She's giving birth to the prajapati. She's giving birth to, the, to, to material reality and to existence. So that's what it means when it says, after this, the quarters of the sky were born from her who crouched with legs spread. The earth was born from her who crouched with legs spread. And from the earth, the quarters of the sky were born. Then it goes on, from Aditi, Daksa was born. From Daksa, Aditi was born. So we're going to have to focus back in on this to show you what I mean. But what, what's happening here is that the, this great you know, primordial egg, great goddess type of a figure here is giving birth to the sky. Then it says the earth was born from her. Then it says from the earth, the sky was born. So you see how we have a paradox the sky is born from her who bore the earth, but then the but then the earth uh, from the earth the sky is born. So we have multiple uh, multiple accounts of where the sky came from in the same sentence. The sky came from her with crouched legs. The sky came from the earth. So it can't be both, right? So we have a paradox here. It's actually kind of a circular paradox. And you see that again in the second sentence. From Aditi, which is the female creative principle, Daksa was born, who's the male principle. From Daksa, Aditi was born. So how can it be that, that Daksa is born from Aditi if Aditi is born from Daksa? This entire thing here is about paradox. It's about the impossible. It's asking you to contemplate the impossible and also to contemplate how something can be self-created. And what you see here is self-creation through division into opposites. So how is it that something can be born from nothing? What Aristotle called the unmoved mover, the uncreated creator. How can that happen? How can that be? Through division into opposites. Right? Because once you have doxa, you have a didi. Once you have a didi, you have doxa. You can't have up without down. You can't have hot without cold. The opposition imply one another. It's a mutual and simultaneous creation, self-creation. That's the thing that God is, whatever that might be. And that brings me to my conclusion. It is uncanny how different in form but similar in content the Hindu creation accounts are from those equally ancient Indo-European myths from Iran and Scandinavia. It is much harder to explain their reach into the Far East 
And yet there is no denying it. What this tells me is that they are deeply, deeply ancient. They have had time to spread the world over and to diverge not only in form, but in language. So these stories are so old that they're carried by people throughout the world for so long that they develop completely different cultures and languages. That's how old these stories are. Now, there are some unique and compelling differences in the Hindu accounts. What sets them apart are a direct confrontation with the mystery of God in contrast to the gods, and with a level of introspection that is not seen anywhere else. We saw many examples where the scriptures ask questions to the faithful and compels them into contemplation. We are asked, what stirred, where, in the context of the ultimate beginning? What could stir indeed before there was any being? And where indeed before there was any space or time? Later we are told to ask ourselves, in our own hearts, what base did he stand on when he set up the worlds? And this drives us to a very specific idea. Was there something before there was anything? What could that mean? We are forced into mystical paradox. Is there any reality beyond material being, beyond space and time? With this unknowable fact in mind, we are asked again, what was the first embryo that the waters received? It is this that separates the idea of God from the gods, the ultimate from the merely transcendent. The Hindus, unlike any of their ancient peers, struck directly at the heart of the religious mystery. We can see them wrestling with God, as the Old Testament puts it, with their confrontation of paradox, of the union of, opposi of opposition. They openly attest that oneness was present before creation, that it is eternally present. It is the idea of the self-created and the self-fulfilling. The scriptures tell us that the opposites created one another, mutually, simultaneously. The hymn goes, From Doxa, Aditi was born. From Aditi, Doxa was born. And we can see the image of the Ouroboros. The very same thing that was there in the beginning, the cosmic egg, the embryo that is everything. The masculine doxa and the feminine aditi together in mystic and paradoxical union. The impossible, the complete, the many and the one. The separation of these opposites is seen as the beginning of mind and of being. So there's a connection between the state of our existence and being conscious. Otherness makes knowledge possible and therefore experience. We are given the imagery of heaven and earth being pushed apart so that the opposites give way to the realm of being. We see the same when Pangu hatches from the cosmic egg to hold the sky apart from the earth. Also when the ancient Greeks speak of Gaia and Uranus hatching from primordial chaos. 
And we shouldn't forget our own Judeo-Christian account of God who, in his opening act, separates the heavens and the earth. What is the God that creates this way? Through separation and opposition and through self-sacrifice. This is the question in the Rig Veda. It isn't any one God. It isn't even all of them. It is, as the hymn says, that which is beyond the gods. So what is it? You see, the Rig Veda offers no answer. It is unknowable, after all. It is something prior to all knowledge. It is enough for them to pose the question, what is it? What could it be? We ask the question, and then we contemplate. In our contemplation, we find the answer that cannot be thought, because it is beyond thought. We find the answer that can only be experienced. We find the one within. And when we do, we realize what the Greeks were after when they said, know thyself. We realize that what we are is the many and the one, the gods and God itself. Well, there you have it. That's one avenue explored, but infinitely more still to go. I hope you enjoyed thinking along with us. I know, I know. It's not easy work. Thinking. It's hard and full of uncertainties, but I'm grateful for the company as we trek through this together. Here's to hoping that the juice is worth the squeeze. See what I did there? Let's find out together in the next episode. <laughs>